Hello, good people, and welcome to another episode of The Coach's Notes. As I'm recording this, I'm down here in the lovely city of Bristol. It is the Easter weekend, and we're down visiting the in-laws. But four days that I've been looking forward to, actually, for being able to just get away from my normal environment and just basically kind of chill. So for the coach's notes today, I want to share a conversation that I had with a good friend of mine named Sarah Beth Hunt. Sarah is a writer and a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher. Let me back up for just a moment here. So I was originally going to use this interview along with others to revive a podcast that I had called The Wisdom experience podcast and it was a podcast that we had that talked about spirituality inner wisdom and philosophy and for whatever reason um i decided not to pursue that relaunch but i did have some great conversations and i think given the direction and the mission of the coach's notes which is about exploring the six pillars of self-improvement, spiritual development being one of those pillars, I feel that the conversations that I did have back in, I guess this was May of 2022, where I was interviewing people, that those conversations, one, they're evergreen and, and timeless, and but they have relevance to what I am doing with the coaches notes community and platform as a whole in this conversation we share our individual backstories and our relationships with spirituality and spiritual development over the years as always let me know what you think and if you have a story you want to share in relationship to spiritual development i would still love to carry on having those interviews on interviewing and finding out about people's different paths to spirituality still a fascination of mine so i would be more than happy to sit down and have that conversation with you all right without further ado here's the coach's notes for today everybody so I'm Sarah and I teach yoga and meditation and I've been practicing yoga and meditation for about 15 years now it's been um and that you know I always say alongside messy real life because I certainly haven't been one to go off on retreats very often and so my path has really been and my interest also has really been about trying to find ways to weave what was originally practices made for monastery life retreat life how to weave those into the life that we have now with families with work with all the things um yeah Cool. So before we get into how you 
came across this path. I was going to say stumbled across this path because yeah, it was um, like that. I, I know you, and I know that, and and you know, we're from similar parts of the world. That you probably didn't start off in that space as a kid. So if you take us kind of back to your sort of childhood, um, was you know, did you come from a, a particularly religious? Uh, family or spiritual family? Did you have any sort of connections in the sort of spirit uh, space back then? So I was raised in the church. My mother was Lutheran, which is sort of one step away from Catholics. And so we went to church most Sunday mornings. And um, I went to two years of confirmation, which was like an extra thing that, that, you know, Catholics also tend to do. And that was really like a kind of more in-depth study of the Bible and stuff like that. And I was always that really annoying child that was asking the inappropriate questions about the dinosaurs and, you know, the, the ones that children come up with mm. that are inconsistencies in, in a logic that religions don't tend to necessarily follow the logic of, you know, school and what you're taught. So, and I did love going to church. I loved singing with everyone. I loved, I wouldn't say I loved, (laughs) I would say that I got a lot out of listening to the talks that my pastor would give on the Sunday. And I think that without realizing it, just having a routine of space in your week where the object was to reflect, to consider that there was something beyond the self or yourself um, in a narrow sense Mm. was really formative to me. And I also was very lucky that although I have a mother who, you know, really loved going to church, she was the driver for it. She also has a very figurative way of interpreting Christianity. So she always encouraged me to question things. She never had a problem with things being figurative, not literal. And so it was never a problem when I had questions or doubts or wanted to do my own thing. What sort of things did you question? Did you question God? Did you question? Oh, well, no, I don't think I questioned God. I always wanted to know God at that stage. And what I questioned was, you know, for instance, in, you know, Sunday school or in definitely in confirmation, because by then I was about 12. And it's a real in-depth study of the Bible. It was two years of once a week for two hours going Mm. and and going through the books of the Bible. And so when you're going through the Bible at that level, questions just arise. Yeah, no easy. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions. Why did God strike people down? Mm. You know, like these kind of things. And, And even you know, more moral questions about, you know, the ones that people come up with, like, how can there be a God who loves you and also lets people get sick? Or, you know, so these kind of questions that that come up a lot and come up a lot around grief and loss and um, questions about things being fair. So, you know, I think that for me, There was always, there wasn't a lot of space, as most people in organized religion will have experienced, for 
the moral exploration and the kinds of things that you do on this podcast and, you know, that we love to do is like ask questions and, and, and find your own answers. Like that's not what you do. There's mm. just faith. Was that the expectation that you just take it on faith? And because yeah. um, I remember if when, you know, our answer to questioning when I was questioning is that was like the devil making you doubt <laughs> and yes. make you ask these questions. That was kind of the rebuttal to, no, we didn't have that. I didn't have that, but it was just, you're a human. You don't understand everything that is in God's plan. Back mm, up. Gotcha. You know, that kind of <laughs> Stay thing. in your lane. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. No, good. And so did you, you know, finish confirmation and then how did you transition from, you know, you said you was like sort of 12 or 13 and that end, and then did this carry on through to your university days or did you lose touch with that well so I had a friend in middle school when I was about 13 14 who came from a different church but she also came from a very like sort of religious slash spiritual version of Christianity and I remember talking to her a lot about the Bible and we were able to ask questions about it and she had a sort of different upbringing she was in much more one of those like clappy new age churches you know and so it was all about it in those, in those churches, I feel like there's much more of a looking for an experience of the divine. You want to feel him mm. or her, you don't say her, but you know. Um, and so I remember having a lot of conversations with her and I remember there being one moment where we were sort of talking about things together and there's a, um, sort of line in the Bible, and I, I will not be able to tell you where it is, that says, where more, two or more gather in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Mm. And for me, that sparked, because these were not the lines in the Bible, the verses in the Bible that were emphasized in my church. And so for me, that was a real moment of like, oh, can I feel the divine? Can I feel God? Can I feel this presence that I've been supposedly going to meet every week at church? Mm. And if not, why? And if not, how? And I feel like there was that moment where, you know, sort of the hair stood up on the back of my net at at the possibility, I think, that that was an option. Because before then, it was all just very, you pray, you ask for forgiveness, and you trust in the Lord. And that possibility of experiencing the divine as I was just me was what I realized I really wanted. So I think, you know, things sort of progressed from there. And when I went to university, I I, I think there was part of me that's just always been looking to feel it, to experience it. Right. Like, what is it? You know, I don't, and I remember going on a, um, you know, when I was 18, after graduating high school, I had saved up all the years of high school to go backpacking in Europe. And we went to, me and my best friend, Sarah, went to Rome. And there's a little church in Rome with a statue that has, and I'm going to forget the name of it. It's a small little church, but it has a statue of, it's not St. Teresa. I don't know who it is, but it's a woman um, with an arrow in her chest, and it's this symbol, this this sort of sculpture 
of the experience of the divine moment when God revealed themselves to this woman who was a nun. And I remember that being a real other moment of just like, there are, I guess it's just, you know, you're looking for breadcrumbs for whatever your question is in life, isn't it? And, you know, for me in this quest for what is the divine, where can I find it? Is it in myself? You know, where is it? Then that was another breadcrumb of like, there are people who have written about, because obviously the the sculpture was an Italian artist's right. interpretation of writing that this woman had done describing this experience of hers. And, you know, so I feel like that was just another moment of realizing that people out there were having actual experiences of the divine that I was not. Right. And so it was like, okay, well, I've always believed humans are humans. And if it's possible for you, then it's possible for me. I just need to know how. Right. So then it was just sort of. So that was set you on a, your quest was to find out so. that, the how yeah. and, and to have that moment. And so what was your, what sort of experimentation did you then take? Did you just stay in the same faith and just ask different questions? Or did you start to experiment with different ways of reaching the divine? just don't think that Christianity in its sort of formalized structure was ever really going to be the, the space for me because I don't believe that, you know, it's the narrow view of it. And I don't, that's just not how I relate to something so vast. So, and there's also in, in Christianity, not as much of a methodology for discovery. And I think for me in the way that my mind works and the way that like maybe my personality works, I wanted a methodology that I could follow. And so when I was at university, a friend of mine had taken a course on Eastern religions or Buddhism or something. And she was talking to me about it. And I thought, oh, I, there was that thing, Mm. you know, like, hmm, I think this, I need to go take this class. So I took a class and this is just at the university of Florida on, it was something very generic called like Eastern religions or something. And uh, so it covered everything from Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, um, Shinto, you know, all these things. And um, yeah, I think there were aspects of Hinduism, which is really the, the association with yoga and rather than the kind of structures of caste and things that also come with that that religion and um buddhism that seemed to answer the questions that i was or at least be the next step in a personalized answer for what the my questions were it was like there's a there's a method you can follow it and here's how to do it but I re- what I really loved about that kind of um, method was it's not about belief. It's about self-discovery. Okay. So it tells you, it gives you practices, but there's always this thing like, don't believe me. Go find out for yourself. Go investigate. Even the teachers in Buddhism, if you go, if you go, you know, if I go to my teacher with a, with a question, 
you never get a real satisfying <laughs> answer. You know, you always get a keep looking yeah. or is it like that always, you know, so. So it's it, an encouragement really is, to experientially find it, is it, to find out that's the it. answer, is it? Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I like that. So, okay, so talk some more about that that journey from, because it sounds like you discovered it at uni. So did you start practicing there, or was that just a very academic um, connection to Buddhism? So when did you? Well, yeah, so, so I remember having a moment. It's been a long time now, Clay, <laughs> since, that, since that moment in my life. And I, I have a, a memory of kind of sitting down in my uh, uni room with a candle and going, okay, I'm going to meditate, right. you know, and, and having some kind of strange, almost out of body experience and thinking, whoa, what's that? And it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a, a, a good feeling experience. It was a experience where I realized there was a space in which I had to let go of control and a space that I had no idea how to navigate. You know, it was like sort of stepping into a maze where there was no map. So I I do remember that. And, and I, you know, I began to kind of go to yoga classes a little bit, you know, there was yoga classes at the gym and then I moved over to the UK and I went to yoga classes just, you know, to practice. And I remember coming out of a yoga class and thinking, huh, that was different. Mm. Like I don't feel the same as I've done with any other exercise class I've ever gone to. So something has happened here and I don't quite know what it was. And I think what's what's sort of... I was going to say, what is the connection between the the yoga and the Buddhism? So how do they connect? Well, so, um, I mean, there's, there's a historical connection in the sense that they both arise from historically similar places in India Mm. and uh, certainly you know the practices that the Buddha himself would have been doing would have been yogic breathing and meditation practices so you know yoga has a very long history in in India even longer than Buddhism so I think in, in many ways, Buddhism arises out of a basis of an, a worldview, which is fundamentally Hindu. Right. So, you know, the Buddha was working within a world in which some basic ideas about karma and about um, energy and about um, this, this spirit, what they call Atman, was, you know, understood. Now, he, he had some different experiences and interpretations of these things so obviously you know he sort of branches off from that but but there's this sort of there is some shared worldview that is very different than what you might find in christianity with the single god pray to him so ask him for forgiveness yoga yoga is so I, i guess what i'm trying to understand a little more clear is 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 a is a route through to spirituality yoga so doing it through the body or is yoga a practice of working the body um, and working the mind uh for me yeah or for just in general yeah for, for so yoga before the 19th like 
mid 1900s, late, like early 1900s, was a few a handful of postures, maybe five or less, and breathing and movement of energy within the body through locks. Like if you swallow your throat, for instance, if you swallow, you'll create the throat lock with it, which is called Jalandhara Bandha. And uh, so there's different locks in the body that will supposedly redirect energy right. circulation. So, you know, so there's breathing practices and then meditation. And so the earliest sort of text that we have, which is Patanjali's um, uh, Yoga Sutras, starts off with four um, kind of sutras or phrases that are basically yoga is the practice of of stilling or silencing the modifications of the mind right when these when these modifications or movement of the mind are stilled the seer appears that's the four that's the sort of in a nutshell okay, and, and it's sense. sort of like if you understand those four lines you don't have to read the rest of the sutras the sutras the rest of the yoga sutras are <laughs> trying to help you get to an understanding of that place. Right. So yoga originally was about mainly mind. And then later there was a lot more kind of focus on channeling energy. Right. And so, you know, th then there's that. And, and it's, it's really only kind of in the 20th century that all of these um, postures, which we call asanas were developed largely down in kind of southwest India um, by a man called Krishnamurti, who then taught four out of the five main yogis that brought yoga to the West. Right. So, you know, it's, and that was practiced by men um, of high caste, and it was largely an aerobic practice for young men. Right. So, so it's sort of like, you know, a mix. And I think what we can take from that as practitioners now of all shapes and sizes and, and physical abilities and interests is yoga is, is a wonderful doorway into an exploration of what your body feels like from the inside, which right. is, we don't really think about, we're, we're much more interested in focused on what things look like from the outside. And then there's, there's as far as you want to take it, you know, so, so you can use it for, you know, just sort of what I like to think of in the sort of vein of Tony, Tony Robbins, like harnessing your physiology to feel good. Right. So we are embodied. We, we are not walking heads. So our bodies, in order for us to feel good, our bodies really need to feel good and they need to work well. And so yoga can just be about that but the tradition of yoga gives us a really long pathway that if you want to go further than that and start working with the subtle breath or with the flow of energies or the chakras or you know which is is the energy centers or you know the mind then there is that option and you can sort of take it if and when you're ready for it right gotcha and yeah. so how has the yoga and practice then lead you to the space where you began to find answers to the questions that you had? 
Well, so I, for a long time, was a little bit too practical to dive fully into yoga and meditation full-time. So I trained uh, in academic studies. Mm. Like I went as far as you could go because I loved being in school and I loved learning. And I did my PhD in Indian studies. And then at some point, you know, if you are studying something, the attempt is to be, is to be objective. That's the goal. Whether right. or not that's ever possible is a different question, but the goal is to be as objective as you can and seeing what you see. And if you're objective, you're always standing outside. You're never actually immersing yourself in an experience and just taking what you can from it or, or asking the question, what is in here for me? Right. Because that's not what you ask as an academic. And so I think there was a point where I just realized this is not actually my path. This is not what I want. What I really want is to know, like, not just to understand in my brain, but to know. And there was a part of me too, Clay, that just realized that, you know, I really, when I learned this phrase and, you know, that in Buddhism, which is one of the first things you learn that like all things are temporary. So everything is impermanent. This mm. is one of the Buddhist sort of kind of tenets. And that is true. Like when you, when you look at it and you think about it, whether it's yourself, whether it's the things around you and the situations in your life, whether it's your feelings or thoughts, things come and go. And I remember one time kind of thinking, even the knowledge that I'm trying to gain as an academic is impermanent. Mm. So no matter how much I study and learn and try and remember, because I was doing history stuff as well. So it's all about remembering facts and who said what and all this stuff. And, you know, I thought, what, what can I, what is permanent? And I don't know if this is a completely true description, but I feel that when you know something in your, in the depths of yourself, because you've experienced it, that's something that's not factual. That's something that changes the inner structure of you. And you can never not know it, mm. you know? It's like, you know, when kids find out about, you know, the magic. <laughs> Once yeah. you know that yeah. it's not what you thought it was, you can't ever unknow that, yeah. you know? And, and so I think for me, there was part of me that thought, well, what's worth pursuing? And even though it was a path that was <laughs> so unclear how I was ever going to support myself, much less prestigious <laughs> than the path that I was on, I just couldn't not do it somehow. Right. And so, you know, it's like when you just can't fit yourself into the box, even though the box feels like it should be an easier and more straightforward fit. So then I went looking for a teacher. And so after I finished my PhD and uh, I found a guy in the UK who's Dutch and who was teaching through the British Wheel of Yoga and he was teaching. So he was doing the teacher training program through the British Wheel of Yoga, but he had also spent his entire life studying a lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. And by that point, I'd had some experience with different kind of just cherry picking kind of different like types of Buddhism. Right. And I always loved the Tibetans because they were always laughing. 
and of course the Dalai Lama is such a, you know, big spokesperson. And yeah, so yeah. You, if you know Buddhism, then you know him. And so I think I'm sure that influenced me. Um, and uh, yeah, so I started studying and I really, I did my, my yoga training with him because I also wanted the meditation. And so now I do both with him. Right. So talk a little bit about your meditation journey then, because I think, you know, like some of our conversations in the past and seeing the sort of stuff that you do, um, but that's, it's almost like you have a yoga path and then you've got a meditation path. And even though they can intertwine and, um, and they link with each other, there seems like there's two paths there. So yeah. So, so the way, like theoretically to understand a little bit, I think something, an explanation that has helped me is they're both trying to get to the same place, but yoga attempts to still and direct the, well, direct and then still the energy in the body. And because energy in the body and the mind come together. So the breath, energy, mind all kind of link up. And if one calms down, the rest of it calms down. Yoga attempts to influence that kind of connection right. through energy. And if you calm the energy, then the mind calms down and you have an experience beyond the busy mind ego. Right. And meditation says just go directly for the mind. If you can still the mind, the energy calms down, everything's still and you, you're at the same place. So for me, my, I, I've had a bit of a swing back and forth where at different times I'm slightly focused on different methods, but I would say naturally my interest has always been to work straight with the mind. Um, and so meditation for me, I think, you know, I think I had that moment sitting with the candle and I just thought there's something here. I remember I went to India and I lived in Jaipur for a summer um, learning Hindi. Hmm. And I was, there was another girl there who was my age and who had lived for two years at a Buddhist Zen monastery in California. And so she practiced her meditation every day. And I was just at the beginning of kind of thinking, mm, I think I want this. And I remember having a lot of conversations with her. Um, and it was really, it's really been about the meditation for me, but of course, meditation as an experience isn't kind of what we think or hope it is. So we, you know, if you've read Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert, she has this lovely kind of hilarious description of going to this ashram in India and hoping that she's going to sit down and she ends up spending, you know, she kind of details what she thinks about the entire time she's supposed to be calm, still mind, mm. including decorating the meditation room she's going to build at home, you know, <laughs> while she's supposed to be meditating, which is what we, we totally all do. Um, so, and of course the first, the, so I finished my yoga teacher training and went straight into training with my teacher in this Buddhist meditation. And I also had my first son. Right. So then I was in a situation where I was being taught a methodology of how to practice that required sitting still by yourself in quiet for quite long periods of time. Mm, and those I had an days infant. were over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I suddenly I had an infant and I wasn't sleeping. And 
it became clearer and clearer to me how long it was going to be before I was sleeping and going to be able to get up at five or six in the morning to meditate before everybody else got up. And of course, my kid was getting up at like five hmm. in the morning, just some ungodly hour. And so my journey for the last decade has really been, okay, you're, if your life is not in a retreat center, and if your life is not in a monastery, what does practice look like? Right. And I feel like this is a question really worth answering because none of us live in retreat centers. All of us who are trying to practice in this day and age, we're not, you know, we're not the, the male of the family that's being sent like in Tibet. They did, you know, mm. people would just be sent to the monastery and that's what you did. And the monastery would send food home to the family in payment for the, you know, yeah. it's just the whole society was set up like that. And that was their job was People rang the bell and everyone got up and you were in community. Whereas nowadays we've got jobs and families and we've also are just sitting by ourselves. Mm. So we don't have that social support system. That's like, don't feel like it today, but everyone's doing it and you are too. Yeah. So it's much harder in many ways for us and trying to figure out how to take the meditation instructions and create a practice that is practical. Hmm. So let me ask you this. So is your meditation a spiritual thing? Because so as you were speaking just then, I think, in a, every, you know, because it's, you know, people talk about meditation, you should be meditating, and there's loads of meditation apps these days, mm-hmm. um, and build, you know, build. So... So there's a component that seems meditation is about, you know, being able to relax and just sort of quiet your mind and be in some quiet, peaceful state. Um, I, what I'm picking up a sense from you is that may meditation is a route through some spiritual experience or in a connection with perhaps what you mentioned, you know, all those questions you had years ago that this is a channel to, to that, to the answers. Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding and my experience is that we are taught that we're taught that our thoughts are the way we figure things out. And that if we can just think about something, then we can eventually get to an answer. Mm. You know, that's what you do at school, isn't it? Like you problem solve and the problem solving happens in the brain, in the mind. And so does logic and all of these things. Whereas meditation, in my experience, is about coming to a a realization that your thoughts block a whole other level of experience that you can easily have. Like you don't have to go anywhere for it. You don't have to be different, but you do have to scale the wall of your, of your thoughts. Mm. It's like, it is the wall. Right. So the game of Thrones wall, (laughs) it is the game of Thrones wall, except, except the North imagine is a lovely place full of (laughs) (laughs) white walkers. Exactly. But you know, and, and Eckhart Tolle talks about this very clearly. I love listening to him because he is so very clear about it, but 
there is an experience of the self. And what I mean by self is the big S self, not the little S self, Mm. the big S self that you can only have when the thoughts start getting a lot more quiet than they are right now for all of us. And so, you know, everybody has to decide when they experience what they take that to be. I was just you anticipate my question because now I'm wondering, well, what is that? How do you know that all your thoughts are quiet and you, you're face to face with big cell? What does that well, feel like? You know, I don't think that there's a, it doesn't, I think my experience is that it doesn't, things don't work in the same way in this place as it works here. Like as in, you know, the answer and there, there is one answer and here it is, mm. you know, like, oh yes, you'll know it's this and this is what's right. And you've got it. Check. Yeah. You're, you're there. You've arrived. I've, you know, I scaled the wall. I'm good. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's more of, I mean, you will know when your thoughts are quieter because you will start to feel the gaps in between them. And it does take time. Mm. Like in, in my meditation group that I run, our sort of practice that we're working on this month is just wait. And it is just a waiting game. You know, you have to stay present and you have to stay mindful, but it's a little bit like if you're at the edge of a lake and you, you know, I was telling a story about how recently I went out for a swim. And when I went out to the lock, there was, um, cause I'm up in Scotland there was just a glassy water. I mean, the, the reflection was just crystal clear. Mm. And then a boat came by and, and everything was choppy. And I thought, oh, that's such a shame, you know? And then how long? Oh, oh it'll calm down in about five minutes. It's fine. Well, 10 minutes later, Clay, that, that <sighs> top of the water was still rippling. Mm. And so for me, I just thought that's, you know, being, being the sort of meditation practitioner, I was like, that, that's exactly how it is. It's like your mind will fall still. And if you're listening to this and you've never experienced it, you're going to say, but not my mind, Sarah. <laughs> but it is true. All minds work underneath generally the same. And they love to be busy and they love to bite their teeth into things and chew them around and work them out and mm. come up with answers Um, but if you wait it out with presence, with awareness, which is hard Mm. to stay in that place, eventually your mind will calm down. Just like if I stood at the edge of the lake, as long as another boat didn't go by eventually, but I'm not in charge of how long that takes, you know? So I think of it like that. Um, so you will feel, and, and again, it's not about knowing, like we know when we found the answer to a, to a Sudoku, you know, like a word problem, like, you, oh, yeah, you've got the answer. It's like, you just see it. Right. You see it happen. Like your mind does start to calm down and you start to have a different experience of yourself. And Eckhart Tolle describes it quite helpfully as there's an ability that we have to drop below thought. And, and that is when your mind goes dull, when you go to sleep or you zone out and, you're, mm. and someone says, what were you thinking about? And you're like, I really don't, I don't even know. know. I was literally flatlining. (laughs) 
and then we're in thought, but there's a, there's a possibility for us that we don't often achieve because you have to work at it is to rise above thought. And that is the mind takes on new qualities. And so I guess to your question about, is this, is this just about the mind? I mean, the Buddha famously did not answer the question of whether or not there was a God. So, you know, everyone, I think, you know, I'll do the Buddhist, you just have to figure it out for yourself, what you see and what you think and what you experience. For me, um, there is what I would call a spiritual experience of vastness and connectedness and, um, you know, Mm. not just self. That is, that is available and is there. And then the question is, you know, now I need to investigate that more. Right. Is that the analytic kicking in that you need to investigate it or do you need to feel it more? I think feel it more. Yeah. That's a better word for it. it. And just be in that place more. I think you should experience it more. Yeah. And Mm. something you were saying about two sentences back reminded me of a line from a movie I saw and it was, you reached a final level is when you know without knowing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I like that. And it just becomes part of who you are. So so my my real um, practice at the moment is doing all of Joe Dispenza's stuff. Right. So my so a couple of years ago it, there's just sort of a new question. I think this is the lovely thing about about wisdom seeking is is the joy of the question yeah. and the possibility of, of the question and what happens when you allow questions to exist. And I had a lovely conversation with someone um, about how sometimes we don't need to understand how things work. We can just ask and allow questions to be there without being answered right away, um, which is hard for our brains to do. But this question came into my mind, like, if I really believe that everything I experience with my senses is filtered through my mind, Mm -hmm. then my whole life is happening in my mind. And you'll love this because this, like, brings in the possibility of, you know, the matrix and everything else. (laughs) But, you know, then if I truly believe that, then... And, and, and I believe that meditation and becoming not only familiar with your mind, but training your mind to do things that are healthy for you, like focus on things that, are, that bring joy and not focus on things that are worrying things. Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of just simple, but, but can profoundly affect the experience you have of your life then there must be some kind of connection between my thoughts and the outside world. And this is the question that all of the manifestors are doing. And so I've never really been taken in by all of this, the secret and just think positive and stuff like that. And it just, you know, that doesn't, that not only doesn't work for me, but it doesn't feel true in some some way but at the same time i feel like there should be some connection between the inner and the outer and so my question in more recent years has been well what is that what is the experience of that relationship 
And is there uh, something about the the I suppose the rearranging of energy, if that's the right word? Because I'm just thinking in, in the terms of the sort of manifesting aspect, and it was something around um, when you fix this thing in your mind to any, and it's very crystal clear in terms of what you want, then the universe organizes itself to make subtle things happen to lead you to that space. But first, it's almost like if we go all the way back to the the, uh, the Bible, kind of where we started, you know, having the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, but you have to have the, you have to have unquestionable faith in it so that you don't put any, so any seeds of doubt, which then makes you have to take a long which, way to your, to your path. That's it. And for me, I feel like I have to understand how things work in order to have that level of faith. Mm. You know, I, and that was what was always sort of, I guess, frustrating about the, the sort of, you know, organized religion model without the experience is that there's really like, I can tell you things about the mind very confidently because I have seen it and I know it and mm. it's not, you know, the, like I'm a long way off from any kind of, you know, possibility of enlightenment. But there are some things that I know about the mind now because I've sat for a long time with my mind. Mm. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people who have had similar kind of processes happen. But, you know, for me, it's also, like you said, very much been about that search for the divine as well and the experience of it. And so for me now, my conceptualization and understanding of that is really more about what I would say is like the unified field right. or the force right. or, you know. And so if there's an aspect of yourself that is intertwined with and inextricable from the unified field, then what is your relationship to it? Like you should be able to affect it and it should be able to affect you. And hmm. can I come into not only just a, I'm reading books and I'm thinking these thoughts, but can I actually touch it? Right. You know, like can in you, that way where I can feel the texture of it and I know it without knowing anymore. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the experiential bit of it versus just you know, having the knowledge of it and the theory of it, but actual, the knowing of without knowing because you're in it. You, you know me, I love that stuff too. Yeah. And I can read books about it and get all excited until, you know, whatever. And actually, it's much harder to sit down and do it than it is. There's something so exciting and, and satisfying for me about reading books and hearing talks and, and thinking this is possible. But you know, sitting down and going through because you're starting from a different place. You know, when you're reading books, people are talking about experiences that it might take you a lot of sitting sessions mm. to get to. So you have to be willing to kind of go through the mundane of the re repetition of things, sitting down, doing it again, noticing what you notice this time what's similar, what's different, you know. Yeah. Just the, pra yeah, just, uh, you got it. Just the practice of, of it. Of doing it, isn't it? So <laughs> was it the saying, you know, before enlightenment, 
chop wood, carry or get water, chop wood, whatever, fire yeah. that thing. And after yeah. that, I mean, you're doing the same thing. So it's that process, isn't it? Um, as we get ready to wind this down, um, is is meditation an innate thing for human beings? As in, um, is it something that we just have to go find a guru and learn it? Is it something like walking, like, I, you know, we have the capacity to walk and I just can now walk and I don't know is or, or breathing is probably a better one. No one, no one had to teach me how to breathe. I guess they had to, they had to teach us how to walk a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. Can a person, can a, would a baby learn how to walk if uh, there was no one around to teach her how to walk? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> is that my Zen cone for and, today? And, 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 and well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think when my kids were little and there was all this like mom chat about, you know, doing tummy time so your baby could hold its head up like yeah. your baby's good like do we have any adults that can't hold their head up yeah, no yeah. Like babies learn you know but the, so there's a natural process i think for these physiological things but we have to remember that with the mind neuroplasticity the idea that the mind is always changing so we used to of course think that when you got to about 21 or 23 or whatever the magic number they came up with like the mind was basically set mm. and then that was it you were an adult whereas now we we know from neurology that the mind is, is changing all of the time. And anytime you have um, neurons that aren't firing together anymore, they decouple right. and you lose that memory. You know, So anyone who's learned a language, for instance, and then not used it for 10 years knows that it's really hard to recall any vocabulary again and stuff like that. So the mind is always being trained. So that, that's what I would phrase it like from a meditation perspective is the mind is always being trained. And so if we are growing up in a world in which maybe what is natural for the mind is allowed to be, then perhaps, you know, if you think about traditional Tibetan society, a lot of the ways, or you think about, you know, you have these programs where they show you know, tribes that are still living in a very traditional way, they'll have long periods in which there is no work. And so I can't speak for what happens to the mind within mm. these people. So that would be really interesting to me to know. But I think what we have to accept from our position is that we have been on a long process of being trained to use our mind in specific ways to rely on logical thinking processes mm. to um, like to control everything to um, and to be productive so busy to so be, if i'm just sitting busy, think, thinking to, to be distracted <laughs> so now we've got the phones and all the things so yeah. now we're being trained and our and we have to understand this i think from a neurological level and i'm working this a lot with my son and myself you know because he's just got a phone and mm. so what how are you training your mind every day mm. is the meditation question it's like are you training it in distraction or are you training it in presence mm. and so you have the opportunity every day to do one of those two things or all the different things that we do with our minds and you have the opportunity to change course whenever you decide. So I guess that's the invitation and that's sort of the invitation every day for me because I live in the river with the rest of us and we're all getting swept down mm. stream in the direction of distraction and busyness and productivity. So that's that's 
the sort of culture that we live in. So to do things that are different can sometimes feel hard and can sometimes feel lonely. It can sometimes feel like people are looking at you like, you know, if you're not productive, for mm. instance, you can, you know, you can get a lot of that, like, well, it must be nice for you or, you know, and, and what you're really doing is making a different choice. Um, but so I would, I would say that I'm not sure meditation is a natural state in the same that walking or holding your head up is, but there are qualities of the mind that exist for everyone's mind, just like water has the, the quality of being reflective, like my story of standing on the lake. Mm. And it's only reflective under certain conditions. So if we have never experienced conditions in which our mind is calmed down a little bit, then we don't know all the potential of our mind. Hmm. And that's, you know, I think we can what, kind what of take think heart in that. Meditation just, that reaching that state through physical activity. So for instance, like um, when I was doing judo and when you're really in flow, um, that there is the thoughts are gone. So I can remember matches where I was thinking, okay, I'm going to do this throw and at this throw, and I'm going to wait for him to do this with his leg or harder than when I just empty my mind, as it were, and I'm, I don't know what's going to happen or what's going to do because I just have the blank. Um, and then there were matches that ended and I had no idea what happened. It's only when I hear the heard the referee saying, you know, Ipone, then I'm looking around, you know, what happened? Because I just was in, you know, yeah. the mind's empty and I was just kind of in presence. Um, yeah. So... Meditation as a term, as a word, is a little bit, it is a term used for a lot of different skills mm. that we're trying to cultivate in the mind. And they're not the same skills. So we call it all meditation, but it's like playing basketball. You need to practice dribbling. You need to practice your three free throws. You need to, you know, have cardiovascular fitness. You need to go lift weights. You need to, whatever. You have lots of things that you're doing to hone different skills within your body so that you can then play a game. And for me, with it's very similar with meditation. There's, there's practices, meditation practices that help us create a skill in our mind where we can focus and be still in concentration. It's a little bit more of like a narrow focus. Mm. And this is what we do when we watch the breath or when we chant with a mantra, or when we look at, you know, there's like gazing, there's candle, you know, there's all these different practices you can do. There is a meditation practice for compassion. There's meditation practices for learning how to hold an awareness of space. And rather than form, putting your attention on the not form. Mm. So there's, so those are just three examples of different practices and different skills. And just because you're good at one doesn't mean you're good at any of the other ones. So right. all of these things. And I think at some point, just like in basketball, they all come together to allow you to do something new. And right. there's an emergent quality where suddenly all these things come and the 
the thing that comes out of it is not just a sum of the parts. It's something new and more. Right. That's, that's what I would say. And so I would say people who, you know, like one of my friends is a marathon runner. And so she loves going out for log runs because like you, she says that they're, you know, this is the way she gets the chatter in her brain to stop. And that's lovely. And to have that experience in your life is important. And also I think the word meditation, at least the word Tibet in Tibet, which is gom means to become familiar with. So in meditation, one of the other aspects is a sort of an awareness of the thought patterns that your particular mind has. Mm. So when this happens, I think this, and then I think this, and then a a story comes up that I always have. And, And you start to see these patterns and you start to realize that these are habits of the mind. Mm. So this is another kind of realization. I don't think any of those things, I don't think those skills are gained by just stopping thought. Right. If you see what I mean. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and, and this has been a, a nice um, perspective change or, or an added perspective, perspective to meditation. And I like your phrase there about, well, there's a couple of them. One is, uh, the training of the mind. So we got to train our mind and you kind of constantly do that. So it kind of reminds me of, you know, going to the gym, carrying on from mm-hmm. the last one, because there's different parts. You, you, I'm going to go train my body, but what does that mean? Okay, you got to do legs, you got to do chest, you got to do back, you got to do That's all it. the interconnected muscles and different exercises do different things. But overall, it adds up to training the whole of the body. So meditation from what i'm understanding from you is is like the meditation is a word but there's lots of different aspects to uh, the practice or the training of the mind uh, to get the fullness of the benefit of uh, what meditation would what kind of would be about yeah, yeah. absolutely I yeah like totally it. there's a really one of the um books that i read early on is by a guy called robert thurman who is Uma Thurman's dad, kind of more famously now, (laughs) but he was one of the first Westerners to become a a monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition in the 70s. And he, um, and now he teaches at Columbia, I think he teaches Buddhism and he's sort of become a lay person again. But he wrote a book called Inner Revolution, which is great. And if you haven't read that, you'd love it. But it, um, what he said in there that really was one of those things that again was like, whoa, was while the Western world was going through the Renaissance and going through enlightenment and and doing all of this delving into science and understanding the laws of the outer world, how the world worked, physics, chemistry, biology, medicine, the Tibetans were doing an equally in-depth study of the mind and how the mind works. Mm. So if we think about the outer world and the complexity that we understand of the outside world now with our physics and our biology and our medicine and our, you know, the fact that we can do brain surgery, the fact that we can do heart surgery, the fact that we understand how to send someone to the moon and what that would take, that's the level that some people understand the inner world. Mm. And so I think there's a new level of respect when we really think about that, then there's a lot of stuff to learn. And it's not, it's not a thing to say in terms of like trying to intimidate anyone, but more of like, there's an inner adventure to be had. Yeah, I like it. And it's, you know, it's vast and exciting and 
you can go on it too. Excellent. So if I wanted to get into meditation, where would I start? What would you suggest? Come hang out with me. Come hang out with you. All right. Where where would we find you at then in that hangout? So so what I think is that, so I have a meditation group and we would meet at first when I was doing my kind of more serious training once every six weeks. And then over the years we meet once every three years. And now it's kind of different after COVID, but it's important, I think, to have a teacher that you can ask questions to because the apps are lovely, love headspace, insight timer is great. But at some point, if you're doing meditation, you you are going to have questions about the things that happen in your mind. Mm. And so you need to have a place for those. And that's, that's where the tradition is actually important. And so for me, it was always really helpful also to have not only a teacher to ask questions to, but a group of people that like, if I fell off my practice, which happens all the time when you're living this life of busyness, there's something that scoops you back up. Hmm. You know, you go to another session and you get re-inspired about why you wanted to do this thing and what you're really trying to do. And then it starts you off practicing again. Hmm. And I'm not sure I would be able to have practiced without that group. So that's my so my goal as a teacher is to provide that yeah. because we don't really have that. We have lots of apps and not a lot of groups where you can get together with people whose life looks like yours. Mm. I think that's the other thing, Clay. We need to be in connection with someone who can look you in the eye and say, I get it. And here's some ways of practicing when you work, when you have kids, when you are find yourself always doing the dishes rather than sitting down, you know? Mm. And in my meditation group, what's really nice is that many times it's not me that says something back to someone. It's one of the other people in the group that's like, oh, well, this is what I did. So we have that kind of conversation that's really helpful. So, um, yeah, you can find all the things I do with meditation um, at sarahbhunt.com. And I'm on Instagram at sarahbhunt. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. No, it's good. No, thank you. Thank you for that. And one last thing, because you just said something that I think is important that I've probably overlooked and missed is um, because, yeah, you have the apps and you have those things and, and you can get the basic practice. But it's that key thing that when I'm on this journey and I'm doing this journey, then I come across something I've never seen before as a result of my practice. What do I do with that? Who's going to answer that question? And now that makes sense for having the meditation um, teacher that you can go to and say, hey, I had this experience. What does yeah, this mean? Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, I was really lucky because my teacher is Dutch. So he's hmm. learned from the Tibetan lamas and Rinpoches, but he can speak in a kind of way that I understand. Hmm. And, you know, similarly, it's nice to be, you know, in a group and having the privilege of leading a group where, we are also speaking the same language, yeah. you know? So, and, and yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on and having this conversation with me. I think I've learned um, a whole lot more in depth about you. Um, and I've taken away a definite different perception or perspective, I should say, not perception, perspective uh, on the meditation and meditation practice. So, Thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Awesome.